what we just discovered is that we need to have uh, externalist rally against Zuckerberg and say, look, you're gonna you're, you're making things very modally unsafe for us. You need to stop. You know, <laughs> this is not good. Um, so just real quick, uh, last follow up here. Do you yeah. think that do you think that um, you have different evidence than the brain in a vat or the simulated sim? because of like content externalism that you've interacted with with real things and they've interacted with with digital or simulated things is that is that what makes the evidence different hey welcome back to another episode of parker's pensies i'm your host parker set case and this is a podcast where we explore all the deepest ideas in philosophy theology nature and life with experts in those fields i really love thinking about cool stuff so come think with me in this episode, I have with me another special guest, Dr. Matthew Benton, and we're going to be talking about a new book that he's edited, co-edited, called Religious Disagreement and Pluralism, and it covers epistemolo- uh, the, the disagreement literature. I never know how to, what to call it, uh, the epistemology of disagreement and how it applies to religious disagreements and religious pluralism. It's, it's a really fantastic book with a lot of great contributors, and I can say that because a lot of them have been on my podcast already, which is awesome. But I, I really like this book. Uh, I wish I had it with me. OUP sent me a digital copy. They were uh, gracious enough to do that. But I don't have a picture for you. But I think uh, I think Matt has one. He uh, has a hard copy he can show you. Before we jump in and get into religious disagreement, how it applies to uh, our own religious faith, uh, I want to thank everyone over on Patreon for making this podcast happen. Uh, more and more of you have been joining the Patreon team. I really, really appreciate you guys. If you have found value from this podcast if it's your top five top ten um favorite podcast please consider becoming a patreon patron i would love to be traveling i would love to do this as a full-time gig and be with matthew benton in person talking about religious disagreement um so thank you everyone who has become a patron another way to support the podcast if you're listening on apple Podcasts, please leave me a five-star review and leave me a comment it helps uh trick the algorithms into uh feeding this out to a lot more people that would be awesome. All right. So without further ado, uh, let's bring in Dr. Matthew Benton and let's get into uh, religious disagreement. Matt, thanks so much for coming on the podcast, man. Thanks, Parker. I appreciate you having me. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if I mentioned, but you're the associate professor of philosophy at Seattle Pacific University. Um, how, how'd you get into philosophy in the first place? How'd you want to become a philosopher? Uh, good. Yeah. I was one of those uh, people who took a kind of different route into philosophy. I, I didn't major in philosophy as an undergrad. Huh. And I <clears throat> did history in English. And toward the end of it, I was getting really interested in like the history of theology and um, taking classes and like English classes as like biblical literature and stuff. So I was kind of yeah. like putting myself to a lot of, sort of nearby issues. Um, but I really got into it mainly by doing degrees in theology. So huh. I know a lot of your you know, listeners are, you say, you know, often master's degree students in like, say, philosophy or, or theology or uh, sometimes faculty places, sometimes perhaps uh, just interested people, sometimes pre- maybe pastors, theologists, yeah. that kind of thing. And um, I got into all that kind of stuff at the same time, but I, I went to seminary twice, two diff- I went to Fuller and then I went to Yale Divinity School, kind of wow. like interested in these ideas, becoming more interested in the academic side, wanting to teach someday. Um, and so then really didn't get into philosophy proper until the end, until I did a PhD in it. And so it was kind of like, kind of like vaguely theological stuff, straight up theology, 
then like philosophy of religion, then straight up philosophy. <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> kind of way to get to it. I wouldn't recommend that route for most people. Oh, that's that's good. I'm uh, I'm actually on that route myself right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> if if it works out fine, great. Um, and yeah. it, but like you know, it's it's uh, I often felt like I had missed out and had yeah. to regret lost ground when I hadn't majored in philosophy and then be, realized I was starting to do it much more, uh, and then even do it professionally. So yeah. Well, but the background that I have is re- is really helpful for the kinds of things I often teach and work in as well. So yeah, yeah, it's right. Like now you're at the intersection of all this stuff, which is really cool. And and I found the this podcast is really cool. I like blessing people with it and stuff. But it's really uh, first and foremost, it was kind of a selfish thing for me to learn more about philosophy and theology. But I I can read your guys' stuff and have you on and have a conversation with you. So <laughs> if anyone else learns from it, that's that's pretty cool too. Yeah. Um, what what did you end up doing your your PhD dissertation on? So I did epistemology. Um, I had I've always been interested in that, especially religious epistemology. Like, what is it that I'm a Christian? I'm from a Christian background, and still Christian. And um, you know, you get a lot of talk of religious belief and what that amounts to. And then there's this whole area, philosophy, a kind of core, you know, central area about like knowledge and belief and evidence and all of this. And so I went to Rutgers. I did a PhD for the dissertation on um, knowledge norms. Uh, the rough ideas had to do with whether knowledge uh, self provides a kind of fundamental norm on um, various things like on um, assertion is one of the big ones I continue to write a lot on that. Like when you assert uh, outright assert that something is so you ought to know that the thing is so you're in some falling short. If you don't um, know what you assert and then there's other ideas um, whether you should only act on propositions that you know, so there's, whether it's a norm of action, and and then also finally in in the dissertation anyway, um, some ideas about whether knowledge provides a norm on belief itself. Um, which mm. so this is a lot of this is drawing on Timothy Williamson's knowledge first epistemology, okay, where it's kind of reversing the order of what you're theorizing about and in terms of what you're doing it. So normally, um, you know, if you're thinking in epistemology, you're thinking especially if you get at it through the Gettier kind of literature, you're like, what makes a belief knowledge is the kind of guiding idea. And then you get to talk about, you know, justification and truth and, and then what else might be needed. And um, that's a pretty standard way to think about it. I mean, even in everyday non, you know, non-philosophers will talk about it that way. Right. Um, But uh, this approach or or the set of ideas I was reading, reading on and talking about, um, think want to think of putting knowledge to work, hmm. some of that normative work. So instead of thinking, oh, you have to have a justified belief or something like that in order to assert the thing you believe, or in order to act upon it, the idea is like knowledge is actually the fundamental norm. Yeah, we'll we'll even talk about what belief is in terms of knowledge. Um, when you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So uh, this was a, this along with actually at the time a lot of epistemology disagreement. This was becoming a very big area in the literature when I was a PhD student. Um, 
And I didn't write actually that much on disagreement at the time, um, but I did more on this other stuff. And I, um, yeah, I mean, you can, if it interests, if readers are interested, I um, later wrote up, a, you know, the Internet Encyclopedia of Philosophy, the kind of yeah. online resource, much like the Stanford yeah. Encyclopedia of Philosophy, where you can just go, it's open access. Um, there's, a, there's an entry on knowledge norms reviewing all this literature that I wrote. Oh, awesome. That's even structured largely in terms of the order of the chapters in which I approach things. Okay. So um, if you're like, what is that stuff he's talking about? And pro- we probably won't talk much about it too much. The rest of this, yeah. you, um, you can go find that. I can even send you a link if you want it. Yeah, that'd be huge. Yeah, that'd be awesome no, for, uh, to get more of your, more your stuff out there. People could uh, see what you're working on. Do you, you, you mentioned Williamson. Do you consider yourself a, a knowledge firster yourself? Uh, pretty much most days of the week anyway, not, okay. not every single bit of it, but, um, a lot of it. So I'm definitely in the camp that thinks knowledge is the norm of assertion. Okay. In fact, it's part of how you can even demarcate or individuate the speech act of assertion that it has its norm on it. Um, and I'm also at the time of the dissertation, I was actually not as keen on the idea that knowledge is a norm of action or that knowledge is the norm of belief in the sense of being a norm of permission. Yeah. Like, that, that you, ought, you ought to believe only what you know. It sounds kind of awkward and backwards. Um, <laughs> yeah. But I've actually actually warmed to that view even a little bit um, because I think it provides a kind of a, an interesting theoretical structure um, that lets you say a bunch of things that weren't even conceivable before you start making this reversal. Um, and I'm on record in some other work thinking about uh, the nature of defeat or epistemic defeaters and, and like whether knowledge defeat is plausible um, arguing from more of a, more of a knowledge first perspective on like, if knowledge is the norm of belief, we can actually have a way of diagnosing why we'd have these intuitions or judgments about cases where it looks like there are defeaters. Um, yeah. But then you can say some other things about, well, in lots of cases, actually your knowledge makes it the case that you don't have a defeater. And it's harder to say that if you take the t- more traditional route. So yeah. I like a lot of it. Um, I tend to like a lot of Williamson's other ideas. Like I, if I'm if I'm pushed on what the nature of evidence is, I actually like the e equals k view. A lot okay. of very popular views. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, some people will say there's a kind of like you know popularity to it because a lot of people are talking about it and are on board with it. But but most most philosophers aren't aren't keen on it. So I think. Right. I like I, m- I must be sort of convinced that there's a lot to this that's worthwhile if I'm going to actually go-, go this sort of rogue route. Um, but that- that's where I've sort of uh, landed, at least in some of the some of the writing I've done. Okay, well, that's awesome, um, man. There's so much stuff there that I would love to chase, but we got to get into this paper here. Um, yeah, that's fine. <laughs> you-, you said that you um, you said that you didn't come to uh, disagreement stuff till later. Uh, how'd you get into disagreement? Why? Why? Um... I mean, so you co-edited this book that that OEP sent me, which is awesome, with uh, Jonathan. Yeah, there it is. I don't know how to say it. Can you say it again? Quanvig. Quanvig. That's good. I said it like an idiot before. Quanvig. (laughs) That's okay. Say Um, it like a W, yeah. Yeah, Quanvig. Okay, that's great. Sounds much better. Uh, So, so, I mean, you edited a whole book on it now. So, so how'd you get into it? Like what? Yeah. Uh, So, I mean, well, I mean, about 10, 15 years ago when I was a PhD student, it was like, this was bec- the, the main papers that became really huge on this literature, at least in that period. And ever, a lot of people in epistemology were talking about them had just sort of come out. Mm. Uh, 
So it was like 06, 07, 05, 06, 07, 08, somewhere in there. You get Feld, Feldman had a couple of papers on it, but they came a little later than even Roger White's important paper on epistemic permissivism. Okay. Um, and I remember having a couple of seminars, epistemology seminars with Sosa and Ernie Sosa and Alvin Goldman, in which we're reading like these kind of big papers. Everyone's weighing in on it. Tom Kelly and, and, and Adam Elga and like all these kind of big, big younger names. And um, I, I mean, you know, I must've written a paper somewhere on it related to it, but I didn't, didn't too much pursue it in the dissertation or later work, but in a way it, especially because so much of the literature is guided initially or, or was kind of said first by people who had their eyes on religious disagreement. Mm-hmm. Um, I had already read little things a bit about it. And I think what, uh, what brought me back to it in part was, well, look, if you do a lot of epistemology and not just, I, I kind of have done a lot on lots of different areas and then verged into this too. If you do a lot of epistemology lately, then you, you bump, run up against this kind of idea. And if you do a lot of religious epistemology, thinking about, you know, rel- religious belief, the possibility of religious knowledge, what kinds of knowledge that might be, what in the nature of faith is, all of this, these are going to kind of come together for you. You're going to have to think about them a little bit because um, most people, at least especially in a kind of more recent, anything in the Western context especially, but they're more globalized context. Everyone's aware that there are lots of people who share different, don't share their views and, and, and maybe have share some of their views, but have different views. And it's, we, we all kind of, it's very uncommon these days for someone to be raised in a scenario where they don't right. like realize, you know, where it's so kind of cocooned that like, they think everyone thinks the same way as them. All you um, need is, is one social media app and you'll see. I mean, <laughs> Yeah. Even if you're a Calvinist, you're not the right kind of Calvinist. So let's get that straight. And and yeah, so here we go. I mean, even especially with the advent of social media, it turns out turns out that disagreeing with other people is almost like a way of relating to them. And like, that's right. (laughs) Being mean to people is part of what you're apparently doing. (laughs) But like, but the but the more kind of intellectual theoretical question. I mean, that's a practical ethical question about how to treat people who you, you disagree. Another one though is like just like. What do you do with the fact that there are these people who disagree? Hmm. Um, and in philosophy, of course, more generally, Sandy Goldberg and others have written on this, like, it's a context in which there's all kinds of arguments in different directions. And almost everyone is very, very smart, well apprised of other people's arguments and ideas. And so then, like, how how could you kind of, uh, you know, defend a view of any kind with while thinking that, like, you're on the right track because like what what about all these other people who think differently or are can argue against it you know um so i i mean i think i finally came back to it partly because uh, i mean that the the other editor who initiated work on this volume it wasn't quantum it was another guy Hmm. it was fritz warfield who with with rich feldman coded that first big volume on disagreement around that period Hmm. came out until it didn't come out till like 2009 or 2010, but um, Ritz was the one who approached me and said, we should do a volume on this, on religious disagreement. I was like, yeah, it's a good idea. And then for other reasons, he had to back away and not, not continue it, and John took over. But um, it made sense to me because I had already done a lot of philosophy, uh, well, epistemology of religion kind of material. If I'm going to plug my own work, I might as well plug my... Do it, plug it away. 
I already had another book come out out of a my post. I had a postdoc at Oxford, you know, big project on new insights in religious epistemology, and then we yeah. we did a volume on that. And so I had I had done some of that, but I hadn't done too much on disagreement. So I thought, yeah, and I know a lot of people who are working on this. Feldman, of course, kind of got that jump started on the religious or the recent version of this literature, yeah. discussing it. Um, and but then most of it took the direction of mainstream epistemology, thinking about this stuff. And so then we you had a lot of other philosophers after that, some of some of which whom are religious, some of whom are agnostics or atheists, nevertheless thinking about well, how does this get applied here in the domain of religion? You also get in nearby work. Um, we probably won't talk about this, and I don't run to it much in the book in the opening chapter either. But there's a whole area of moral disagreement too. Yeah. Where how can you have a view about morality, uh, whatever your view is, and have all these different dis- you know, especially about meta theoretical stuff about um, meta ethics and all of that, yeah. or or if you're like the, here here are some realists, or here are some objectivists, and then here are subjectivists, and here are relativists, and you know like. <laughs> here are realists, but they're realists not, you know, because they're Platonists. And here are realists or objectivists because they're like theists or, or whatever. Like, <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. all similar matters, including just everyday people's judgments about moral cases. I mean, yeah. right now, abortion, of course, is such a big thing. It's, you know, always been a big thing, but, you know, now it's back pressing every on everyone to think carefully about it or just know what, what at least the legal situation should be. Like, what do you do about the fact that there are lots of people who think differently about you on that issue, say? Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, that's what's so fascinating about, about disagreement literature. I, I keep getting pulled back into it. And I think when I don't think about it too much, I'm like, ah, oh, that's no big deal. You know? And then I think about it a little bit more <clears> and stuff and I'm like, wow, this hits everyone. And religious disagreement is fun because whether you're agnostic or an atheist or whatever stripe of theist, it hits everyone. There's people who disagree with you that look like you're look like they're your peers who are not so easy to write off. They look like they're smart people. You yeah. appreciate them. They don't seem like they're moral rep- reprobates, and yet they believe completely different than you. And like you don't have an error theory where you can you just say, well, they're they're so deluded and stupid, um, which is wild. I think that's, <laughs> I think that's fantastic. Um, so let's jump in on, on like disagreement generally. I th- I've done, uh, I've had a few episodes on, uh, epistemology or I need help saying this. Is it, I know people say, uh, disagreement literature, but is it right to say the epistemology of disagreement or epistemological disagreement? It's not really epistemological disagreement, but how, how do you refer to this phenomenon? I mean, yeah. I mean, most of it is construed as the epistemology of disagreement. Okay. So it's like a branch of epistemology in that. And you frame it that way. Okay. Um, and they're thinking in pretty general terms about various cases in which disagreement ought to have a kind of normative pressure put on you to reconsider your belief or, or, or whatever, whatever your doc's yeah. stance is. Um, okay. But they're usually, of course, thinking of, they're starting by thinking of very clean, thinking about very clean cases. Yeah. Um, and then they're thinking, that's one way to think about it. And they'll often then take those clean cases and think something similar is going to have to apply in these dirty, messy cases. Yeah. Yeah. There's another approach, of course, that is working with principles and supposing that um, like the Roger White thing about the Feldman to uniqueness looks like it's a principle that would have to hold. And here's a bunch of reasons why. Um, And whatever you say about that's going to then have 
ramifications for what you think any normative principles would be about any any or all cases of of disagreement. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I, I it always uh, trips me up because I I think like uh, there's like philosophy of logic, but you can also call it philosophical logic. But if you say like epistemological disagreement, it sounds like you're only referring to disagreements in epistemology instead of the epistemology of disagreement. So right, this, right. this stuff always messes with me. But um, okay, that's, so good. that's right. Though. That sound right? Okay. Okay. Um, so uh, real quick, let's go over just some some terms um, like let's talk about belief credence understanding and faith and i think we're going to talk probably mostly about belief but just for it's always great to get a philosopher to to define these terms for me like what what is belief that's a hard one <laughs> so i think we can for our purposes we can get pretty close to something that works um okay. this is difficult because even in this literature one of the reasons this literature was became a big thing was because you have which you might think of traditional epistemologists working with a notion of outright belief. There's this coarse, coarse notions like outright belief, outright disbelief, or you think it's false, believe it's false. And then suspension of judgment or withholding judgment as being the three kind of main categories. Right. But then you also have sometimes called formal epistemologists working with more fine grained ideas, like sometimes called partial belief. Sometimes called graded belief, sometimes called discredences. We can talk about that in a minute because I know you want to, we can get to that in a second, but let's just work with outright belief. Yeah. Um, the kind of thing most of us have a very good grip on. Um, normally the idea there is like, it's, you're making, you're making a kind of mental, ju- sorry, people who are, you know, mature and like, like, like well cognitively developed mm-hmm. um, who, who can like, you know, bring ideas to mind, right? they might even be able to introspect and say, well, what do I believe about this or that? And, and, and in that case, they might just be making a judgment about what they think is true. Right. But you might think actually we're not that good at that. (laughs) And in some ways our, our actions will be a better guide to whether we believe various things. Yeah. But here's the idea. Outright belief is a kind of full on mental commitment to some truth. Okay. Um, I think a decent way to get at that perhaps um, it, one of the ways I like a gloss I like that's sort of knowledge first oriented is like when you believe it's just when you take yourself to know. Hmm. Okay. That's not going to be perfect as a, as a definition, but it, it's going to capture some of the phenomenology. I think of like what it feels like when we have beliefs. Yeah. Because you don't outright believe like this of the full, full on kind. Yeah. You typically regard yourself as knowing. That. Yeah. You take yourself to believe it. You're, you, you don't have, but, doesn't seem like you have beliefs that you think are wrong, right? Like you take them to be cases of knowledge. Otherwise, they wouldn't be your belief. Usually. Now, I mean, we can make room for this. There are going to be a lot, especially when you start thinking about inductive cases, probabilistic cases. Yeah. Um, or cases where you're like, you're tentative enough that you might drop the belief under very nearby circumstances or something else. <laughs> hmm. when, but when you believe outright, you usually are committed enough that it would take a lot to move you off of it. Okay. Another way to think about outright belief in this uh, sense, I think, might be maybe you don't have to go with the um, take yourself to know it, but like you could take, and this will be related to the credence idea too. You might gloss it in terms of your dispositions to put bets down. Mm. 
So um, <clears throat> that kind of goes with the action, like you were talking about before. Like, would you act yeah. in this? Would would you act on that belief? Yeah. I mean, but let's take before we even think about betting behavior. Let's just think of like cases where I mean, I'm in Seattle. It's raining a lot today. <laughs> Suppose you uh, don't like getting wet in the rain. Well, here's a here. You know, you're going to kind of make a bet, as it were, by yeah. using to take your raincoat or your umbrella when you go out, right? And you mm-hmm. might care a lot that about that a lot by like checking the weather or looking outside or make you know realizing what time of year it is and how often it is that it rains it's around here. Then, but you, if you believe outright that it's going to rain and you also desire not to get wet you're normally going to act on it by doing something that kind of reveals to you that that's what you believe. Right. Um, so I think that's a kind of everyday case that's use, useful to helping us see it. Okay. That, so if you think of grabbing the umbrella or whatever, as a kind of almost a, a practical way of placing a bet, not, not money. Right. But it's like right. you, you, you're doing that. Then, then that's also like we act on what we believe often what we believe in that sense would be something that we just treat as knowledge. Mm-hmm. It is true in our, practical reasoning or, or if we're going to tell someone what you know some in a conversation where it matters that thing we're going to just we're normally going to outright assert it yeah that all that's all sort of tracking what outright belief amounts to okay um, but the betting behavior thing is the way that some some philosophers to some extent i think um frank ramsey when he orish, originally got at this and some people after him thinking like look you can you can define a kind of probabilistic notion too, where um, you know you 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 there's a certain amount of money you'd be willing to put down. Yeah, it's of course related to how much money you have and diminishing <laughs> <laughs> right. marginal you know returns and stuff like that. But like leave that to the side to make it okay. easier. Like you know, would you bet ten dollars on this? You know, if you're if you're going to hesitate, then maybe you don't out fully but outright believe it, but. You know, there, there's going to be a range of conditions under which, sure, it's it's probable enough for you that you put ten dollars down, mm. something. Um, but if you think it's, uh, you know, unlikely, whatever the thing is, you're surely not going right. to put ten dollars down. Um, and so the idea about credences, or you know, sometimes it's just construed as subjective probability, is that we have we have less than full on belief a lot of the time. And normally we're pretty good at knowing that we have at least not full out, full on belief. Yeah. We think something's somewhat likely, right? Um, and, and so I think we're, we're often, we may not put a precise number on it between the, the way that this is often construed is think, think of like a, you know, the array of numbers between zero, real numbers between zero and one. Like, yeah. you know, and it's like 0.5 is in the middle. Well, that's like roughly the analog of suspending judgment. Where one would be certainty, suppose you have P and not P at both ends. If you have probability one that P, then that's like being certain that P. And that presumably is going to go along with outright belief that P. Right. But if you have 0.6, you know, you're like, you think it's a, a bit more likely than not that P, but you don't, you don't, uh, you know, that confident of it, basically. Right. So these are measures of how confident you are. Yeah. Proposition. And of course... Then you can apply mathematical models to think this through, and there, there are these constraints. And um, formal epistemologists will play a lot with like there's a kind of math math ver- mathy version of this where they're, they're thinking you get some new you, know, you get some new evidence. How do you change what your number would be on yeah. the ladder? Um, but the basic idea is like if you're 
if you're one side of 0.5, then you think it's more likely than not. If you're the other side, if you're like 0.4, you know, point, less than 0.5 towards zero, you you actually are think you're more confident that it's false. Mm-hmm. Right? But that's a way of think. That's just a, an, another way of believing, right? Or having a partial belief toward the other side that I think is false. Um, well, but, so when 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 that go ahead, sorry. When, yeah, when when all that comes into play and, and you get the Bayesians, uh, you know, ripping off, just brrr, just going with the the <clears throat> theorem. I wonder how how I'm bet there's literature on this, but I don't know it uh, about like the psychology of of credences and how well we can determine our own credences. Um, uh, what do you think about that? How 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 accurate um, are you at determining your own credences? Um. I think we're often pretty bad. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's what's interesting about this whole area of formal epistemology. It's uh-huh. it's largely, and they'll they'll often talk in this way. It's an idealization. Okay. So the idea is that they're thinking about ideal rationality, the structure of it, you know, what the most perfect way to update your credences in response to new information is, and so yeah. on. Um, and then, of course, of course, usually how that's going to play out in in a decision theory that's going to let that model do some work and just helping you decide what to do. So in a way, of course, it's related to the acting stuff and maybe not betting exactly, but in so far as any actions are kind of bet. It's okay. based on what you believe or what you think is most probable. Um, but I think we're not, I mean, we're not that good at a lot of it. I think sometimes we're fairly good at certain mundane things, but when things get complicated, we're very bad. Okay. Like, I mean, we, we let me just rephrase that. We're, we're bad at putting precise numbers on things. Sure. We might be fairly good at like um, having a sense of like wh- whether we land between 0.5 and like, do we think things are more likely than not? We mm. might be fairly good at that judgment. Like um, often if you have a good grip on your background information and the way you've used sort of your inductive grounds for other things about some matter where it's, you have a lot of experience with it. Yeah. Um, you'd be fairly good at like making a, you know, making a kind of, this is more, pro- this is probable or at least somewhat probable. Yeah. W- rather than improbable. Right. But that's just a contrastive notion. I mean, yeah. Any of us are very, are going to be like, Oh, that's 0.9. Whereas right. 0.6, like, the only way that that tends to be plausible, as I, at least in for most of us, is like you know you, you watch the weather, or, or you look on your phone. You know we have fancy weather apps now where it's like here's the per, here's the percentage, here's the like thing they're giving you. Oh, it's eighty percent chance of rain today. Mm-hmm. Okay, you might, especially if you have a lot of experience with that app, you might be like, I'll just be point eight that it's going to rain today. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. But that's just a kind of testimony that. You know, not not just from an individual, but you, we had an older version before apps. You know, you watch the weatherman or something, right? And he said, it's "Very like, likely I'll, to rain today." <laughs> right, right. You're just yeah. In that sense, you're like even that though. You'd be like punting on it. You'd be like outmoding your your credences to someone else, to a, a machine or to a, whoever's running the app. I, I have some friends uh, like this dude Joe Schmidt, who I I bet that dude could tell the difference between like. 0.6 and 0.7 but mo- like i can't and i think uh most most people probably are not but it's it's yeah. helpful that it's 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 uh idealized it's it, it's a feel I, I think it's probably more likely than not um well say, so can i yeah, just add two ahead. things please, about please. why 
sort of independent, that was just rolling with like how it often feels to us, how, how good we seem like we are. Right. But there, there are other considerations that should lead you to think we're kind of bad at a lot of basic judgments of probability. Um, one is a more theoretical one from the epistemology side. I mean, I've already expressed how allied I am with Williamson and Williamson and some others too have argued like, even when you know, you're not always in a good position to know what you know or know that you know it. Mm. And so there's a sense in which you might think like, maybe typically we're well positioned with respect to our mental states or with respect to some other things that are mental for us where like, let's suppose credences are like that. Um, but the idea that we're like very good at decide, like figuring out what they are yeah. <laughs> is like needs some motivation. Okay. Also with respect to probability itself, um, you know, we have, I don't know how much you've read outside of, you know, these areas of philosophy, but you know, the work by like Kahneman and Tversky on mm. like, how bad people are at making probabilistic judgments. Um, there's this famous, I mean, so Daniel Kahneman and I think it's Alfred or uh, get his first name, Tversky. Tversky died a while back, but Kahneman won the, no- for their joint work, won the Nobel Prize. He was an economist, but also worked in psychology, kind of both. And they had these famous papers where they're doing like, like one of the initial cases, one of the initial examples is like, they just ask people questions about things in these psychology experiments. <clears throat> and they're like, look, here's an, here's an individual. Um, this isn't quite the exact case, but it's close. Uh, you know, here's a, here's someone and tell us how likely it is you think that they are ending up doing this job. Yeah. Like, oh, um, here's, uh, here's the woman, Jan. She's a Berkeley uh, undergrad, graduate, you know, graduate. Um, she, uh, you know, is a bookworm. Um, she, uh, you know, supports women's rights on various things. You know, they would, le- they would read you all this stuff. Yeah. And then they'd say, how likely is it, is it that she's a this and that, a th- something else, right? And so you're kind of just making these social judgments, these associations. Right. And one of the questions is, how, you know, about how, do you think, do you think she's a librarian? And another question is, do you think she's a feminist? But then a third one would be like, how likely it is, do you think she's a librarian and a feminist where they give you that and you're going to track, mm. you're going to track the feminist thing and attach it given the things you said, whereas the librarian part kind of fits kind of with what you think. Yeah. But, but part of the result of these like cases is people will over attribute probability in cases where it's two things, where the two uh, together are supposed to be less likely than just the one. Right. And so if you ask her how likely is it she's a librarian, you get far lower like judgments that, yes, that sounds right. But if you ask her a, li- a, a feminist librarian or whatever, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's up. But like, that's weird. You should think you should not there's lots of cases like this. You can do base rate fallacy things like how likely is it that she's a teacher? How likely is it that she's a librarian? Well, in any given city, far more teachers than librarians, right? Yeah. 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 But like, but like the librarian fits the kind of social categorization of things that they mentioned in the description, things like a bookworm or what, or whatever. Yeah. And so that's also something you can. And so like the part of the point is like, we make these kind of, Fat, the, the, the book that later Kahneman gives is about thinking fast and slow. It's like we yeah. make fast judgments of 
using heuristics without doing the slower thing, which would be like, think through what the likelihoods are. And so I think only when you've been tutored in a bunch of that and, and see how easily we can mess it up, hmm. would you be a little more careful to make probabilistic judgments in the right way? Yeah. That's all to point out. We maybe aren't that good at what we actually think our credences would be on its own matter. Yeah. So Matt, you're, you're, um, dude, you're a wealth of information on epistemology. And I really hope that you answer this in the way I'm expecting, but do you, <laughs> do, you do you think that this has helped you think fast and slow, like studying this kind of, these kind of cases, do you think that you would do better, um, on those kind of tests where, you know, you're looking at, uh, whether she's a library or not, do you think that it would actually help? I hope that you say yes, please say yes. I mean, I, uh, it probably depends on how much seriousness I'm giving it. Okay. Like kind of notoriously, these psychology experiments, they're, gi they're given largely to like, you know, 20 year old undergraduates. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, that's right. They're about what's white, going on. They're just, they're doing class, it yeah. because they're in a cl class that's maybe a psychology class. That they're they got free pizza for it or something. For yeah. it. yeah, right. Yeah. Like, and so I don't know. I mean, I think, I think, you know, we're, we're going to be better at putting the right kind of effort in when we think something matters. Yeah. Um, I think that I haven't learned probably quite enough to be able to do it carefully all the time. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I think I'd be a little better or I'd be at least a little more alert to the mistakes I might make. Yeah. Um, on certain matters, but I don't know that's going to make me all that much better of a judger hmm. with respect to certain questions. Yeah. Only people who have been, you know, very well. Oh uh, yeah. That's a good point. Theory will, will, We'll be able to kind of go into that mode. Um, but I do think you can learn it. I think you can, I mean, just like I teach a lot of logic, like I'm much better at evaluating arguments because yeah. I had to learn all that and had to teach it to other people. Um, and so the skill, there's a kind of skill, right, involved yeah. in some of this. It's not just about learning that it's, these things are out there. It's, it takes a lot of practice. Almost, yeah. almost anything would. That's awesome. That's a good point. I, I just wanted to rebut any kind of, uh, notions that like you know it goes around where people are like oh ethics <clears throat> teachers aren't ethical and blah blah blah. and it's like yeah some some aren't some are really really influenced by ethical arguments to become vegans or or they think it's okay to eat meat now or whatever but like philosophy is important and it does change your life and change the way you think and reason so mm -hmm. i i like what you made this great distinction though just because you study it doesn't mean you're going to be like this master test taker because you're not out there practicing test taking like same thing with like a, a philosopher isn't isn't necessarily going to be amazing at the GRE if they didn't study the GRE for three months before taking it. Yeah, there's. I mean, you should make the same claim about you know the distinction between coaches or teachers and practitioners, like athletes. Yeah, somebody who's an athlete would be amazing at what they do. You know, later they 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 get older, they become a coach. Well, by becoming a coach, they still have a version of the skill, but it's not going to be be able to hit home runs and stuff. It's more yeah. like. Like they can, but it's a different skill to teach other people how to do it well. Yeah. Than it is to do it yourself. Right. 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 You're hitting home a little bit too much for me here because I used to, be <laughs> sorry. I used to be a wrestler and <laughs> I'm trying to get it back. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right. Well, let's, let's go in on, on uh, some more disagreement here. Uh, for those who are uninitiated, um, I mean, a lot of you guys are initiated if you're listening to this, but if you made it this far and you want like a deep dive, there's a bunch of other episodes. I've done at least three others on, on, epistemological disagreement but matt can you just give us a, a quick overview what is uh what is what's the core of disagreement literature so the, the epistemology of disagreement tends to focus on questions about 
whether there are broad obligations that we have to you know revise your belief or or downgrade your confidence in some belief you have when you when you discover that a certain kind of person in a certain kind of scenario disagrees with you on it now that you might think the easiest such a case of disagreeing is like on some suppose here's a certain scenario that really matters we see, tend to have largely the same evidence mm-hmm. because of course if we have different evidence it's not very interesting that we might disagree like and that we're often think going to think of ourselves as peers on that matter like where i mean there's lots of different ways that philosophers try working on this try to think about a peer but the basic idea involves at least you know you think they're about as smart as you and well apprised of some of the information maybe that's going to build in what you have similar background other information so that you know what to do with this evidence you both have or share so that same kind of evidence and similar in peerhood or you know being a peer if that if there's a case like that and then you find that you disagree in this way suppose i believe that p is true and then you you know you're my peer and we are sharing the same we look at the same evidence but you come to conclude that not p that's a very clear case of disagreeing like you believe something's false that i ended up believing is true yeah you might ask other nearby questions what if you ended up suspending judgment on the basis of that evidence whereas i end up believing that's not quite the kind of disagreement we normally have in mind, but it is a kind of disagreement. Like that your ending judgment was to conclude not to believe either any particular thing yeah. to wait, as it were, you're like the evidence isn't compelling me the direction. Yeah. Believe or disbelieve. Whereas I'm like, I, I believe. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, I mean, th- they think of cases like this and especially like once we've learned about each other, both that we're, have that same kind of evidence and we are we, we at least think of each other as peers it sure feels like that provides a pressure to for both of us to revise or rethink um or at least suspend you know maybe suspend judgment on our belief while we look into it more right like the very finding out that someone like that with that kind of evidence doesn't believe the same way i do is is not often the way it's construed is like it's like itself a kind of evidence of some kind that I have to respond to on pain right. of rationality. Yeah. Higher, higher order. Basically the way it's running. I mean, yeah. that's one way to think about it. Okay. Um, the higher order evidence thing, but I noticed that this seems like this can happen in all kinds of cases. Like, I don't know in your other episodes, if you talked about Christensen's dinner check splitting case, that's a very standard one to start with. Yeah. Or even perceptual cases of like, you know, Tom Kelly's got a case where it's like you view a horse race and you're both kind of stand standing right at the finish line and these two two horses' heads go across real fast, and I think one horse won, and you think another one. That's not. It's like we had what looks like the same angle of perception at the matter, yeah. like roughly the same. We were supposing we have the same evidence in that case. The structure of these is clearly is like trading on important things, where it looks like there's almost should be a kind of canceling out. Like yeah. so I see that you you dealt with the evidence differently than I did, and and I think you should be a, as good as I am at evaluating that evidence. It'd be a bit weird or irrational for me to be like, I got it right. And you, so you need to rethink your view. <laughs> yeah. Like, with, with, without some kind of like error theory, right? Like if you, if you saw that like, Oh, maybe I'm a step further than him, uh, you know, closer to the line where I can see directly on and he can't like, I'll, if you had one of those, it's fair game for you to hold your, 
it might be for a game. I know everything in epistemology. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's, that's I think, the idea. That, that would disrupt the idea that we're peers or gotcha. that we have evidence. Yeah. Um, um, well, so... Inside those kinds of cases, yeah. With, with the, the peer stuff is so, is so fun uh, to think through. I wonder, I wonder if, if I think that you're my peer and, and uh, we disagree, I think you're my peer, you don't think that we're peers. Should I take you to be my peer? Like, we're disagreeing on that. I guess it would depend if I'm if I hold to like some form of conciliationism. Um, let's say I do, and I and uh, what's the fifty fifty one where where it's like suspend judgment? What's that one called? That type of conciliationism. Well, do you mean that you you ought to both move to to suspend yeah. judgment? Yeah, that's often the result of an equal weight view. Equal weight, yeah. Right. There's okay. an e- there's a certain view of conciliation. So conciliationism, right, is the view that like. Well, roughly that these kinds of cases mean you ought to conciliate that now how to do that is one question, how far you have to do it. Okay. Well, weight view just says in cases where same evidence, same or similar abilities, like peer being a peer, you ought to treat your peers judgment on as equal with equal weight to your own. Yeah. And And normally in a clean case, what that would mean is, you know, if, if you believe that P and I believe that not P, well, we should probably re- revert back to suspending judgment. Or if yeah. it's a probabilistic case, you know, I'm like 0.8 and you're like 0.2, we should both go to 0.5. Yeah, it's like like if there's a scale and I have, I'm have i treating my weight as heavier, but then I treat yours equally, yeah. it's or back to neutral. Sure. I mean, it's nice. This mo- model in epistemology is nicely used, this kind of, this kind of scales. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's it's representing for us in physical terms how it is that you put something on one side, the other one has to move. Right. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Well, so so um, we're we're at the horse race, and we we both, you know, I think that Sea Biscuit won, and you think, you know, Mud Clomper won. <laughs> um, and and I think, well, you're my peer, so um, yeah, I should probably conciliate here. And you're like, no, we're not peers. Um, so now I have this, I like. We're now we have two disagreements, right? Yeah, right. And I have this, we have a disagreement over whether we're peers or not. And so it's like, should I think that maybe, should I withhold judgment on whether you're my peer? And then that would have like this effect on me believing that uh, Seabiscuit won. See what I'm saying? Yeah, no good. I mean, <laughs> I haven't thought about this kind of case very often. Here's um, what, here's one thing you might think about how that should go. Uh, uh I'm just going to put some different ideas out there for how yeah. how one could argue in a case where we we conclude differently, and you're will you're like willing to conciliate. So again, we have roughly the same evidence. Let's say you think of us as peers, and then I'm like, no, you're not here. Um, one thing you might do is say, oh, geez, like I definitely need to defer to him now because if he thinks I'm not his peer because he presumably thinks that. He's superior on this matter. Maybe I have a further reason now to move uh, you away from my view or, or away from my belief I started with. But you might actually run the other way. You might, it, again, it's going to depend maybe on your personality, but also <laughs> you have some background information. It's like, sure. wait, I, I could only be his peer if he's humble enough to think I'm his peer. Or sorry, mm-hmm. he could only be my peer if he's humble enough to think that I'm his peer. His give, his telling me that I'm not his peer is a reason for me to think there's something amiss, you know, some kind of epistemic vice in him. Yeah, yeah. 
so maybe that throws it off. So you're not really sure what to do with it. It does, but doesn't doesn't necessarily mean you you have more pressure to conciliate. Okay. Um, I don't know that that would give you too much reason to stick with your guns on it. Yeah. But I don't know. That's just to point out that finding out that someone else doesn't view you as a peer isn't itself going to push you in a particular direction yet. Okay. Because um, you you might have reason to think they're wrong about that. Yeah. And now you have two. You have like a reason to think they're wrong about the higher order thing of whether we're peers. But then also, you you started off with thinking their their judgment was wrong because you right you included differently. Right. So it kind of in some ways, this is a very complicated scenario. Yeah. I don't think it's I don't think it's clear exactly what a conciliationist would have to say about that case. Okay. Okay. That's good. <laughs> I, I started. I like that, that whole... case. It's really interesting. Well, I, I started the whole case because I wanted to work in uh, if someone someone is or isn't appeared too purely, but it was too cheeky inside. And I, didn't want to <laughs> try too purely. I thought that was too much. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, um, OK, so I, I was wondering for, for yourself, like, do you do you consider yourself a, a conciliationist at all? I think it depends on what the view is trying to say. I mean, okay. I think usually the view to be an interesting view will insist that in a range of these cases, you must conciliate somehow. Mm -hmm. Um, If all that means is only in the cases where it looks like we're peers and we seem to have pretty much all the same evidence. um, I I think even there, I'm not quite sure conciliationism is right because we need a story about like it's, and it's not clearly a purely conciliationist story, about what what other stuff gets to matter. Okay. Like, do we count as peers if we have different background beliefs or different, even on a, you know, credence framework, we have different prior probabilities. Like, uh, if you have different prior probability function and here's some evidence comes into both of us, you know, I'm going to land probably on a different output number than you. Right. But it's going to be rational for me to do that given my priors. And it's going to be rational for you to do that given our priors. So, yeah. so are we thinking that being a peer means having all and only the same background evidence or mm. background priors? That's going to be hard to ever find another peer, right? Yeah. Um, and so it kind of depends on how you work out the details of this. It, there's also the matter of like, do we really share evidence? Like what is evidence such that we could share it? Hmm. These easy cases sure feel like they give easy answers in favor of a conciliationist, or at least the conciliationist explains the, the pressure to, to rethink it in a nice way. But once we look at like how often this is going to come up, I, a part of me wants to say this hardly ever happens in these pure cases. Yeah. And so then it's like, narrow, it might be that it's narrowed it so much to just these really easy cases where sh- if the conciliationist view says in the easy cases you ought to conciliate, then I'll be like, yeah, sure. It's just kind of an uninteresting view if it like doesn't m- come up very much. Yeah, if it only hits those really easy ones. Yeah, yeah. I'm more interested in the. Do I have obligations in cases where it kind of looks like we're peers and we have largely the same evidence? And then, furthermore, I hear from you how in complicated cases how you process the evidence, and then I disclose to you how I process the evidence. Um, now we're gonna start making different judgments about. I might not think you're not my peer anymore, but I might think, look, I can see a mistake in your reasoning right there. Yeah. 
Conciliation doesn't t- doesn't tell me I. Ha- I mean, once you throw off the similarness, it's like conciliationism isn't built to talk about those cases. So, right. so in a way, it, it starts to look like yeah, there are going to be cases where I should conciliate, um, the very clean ones. Mm-hmm. But if you think that conciliation is the view that like having defined up these notions of what similar evidence is and what peerhood and consistent that happens a lot. And furthermore, we're obligated in those cases to always conciliate. I find it to be hard to make the case that that's really going to apply across the board in those kinds of cases. Yeah. So I kind of like, like the idea in general, but the working out of it in particular mess, especially messy cases, it's, it's tough. And so that's not to say that I love steadfast views either, but it's more like the steadfaster who thinks there are certain even clean looking cases where you use, you are within your rights to stick to what you ended up believing, even, even without say an error theory or you know, some explanation of how things might have gone awry for them and not for you. <laughs> well, you know, I think, I think it's really hard. I'm more of like thinking like case by case, like, you give me a case I can think about yeah. Um, yeah. sometimes looks like steadfast is actually fine. Like you're not going to be violating any kind of interesting norm by remaining steadfast in some of those cases. Yeah. It seems like it always, it always comes back to Chisholm's problem of the criterion where it's like just being a particularist in general about lots of stuff. Like maybe, maybe the Methodists <laughs> are always going to run into problems. And so if you're like, I'm a steadfast or hardcore through and through, or, um, I'm a conciliationist, like, well, here's a case and, you know, just talk to a philosopher and they'll find a case for you. So it's yeah. like, yeah, being more eclectic and saying, look, yeah, in, in this case, it seems like it works and those it doesn't. And um, I don't need, maybe it, I don't need, or it's not desirable to have uh, this method that covers every single case or maybe it's desirable, but it's not probable or something. Yeah. I mean, but again, it's going to depend on what the exact view is. Like, so let me ask you when mm-hmm. given what you've, learned and read about it. What is your view about what conciliation is? Oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> Don't put me on the spot. Like, did, did I gloss it pretty accurately? I, I thought so, yeah. I, I usually have, um, I'm, I'm not as up to date on, on the current stuff. So, like, I have, you know, Feldman's uh, paper in my head deep, but uh, that and, and, and some Kelly and stuff like that. But, but I haven't done a ton except for I, I read uh, some chapters in your book, which is awesome. But conciliation is like, yeah, you to to some degree, I think there's like moderate and more extreme cases. And I would think like equal weight is kind of equal weight to me seems a little extreme. But I bet there's some that are like defer, deferentists that they want to go further than (laughs) 50, right? So Mm -hmm. it's kind of hard. But um, I I think conciliation, if you move towards your interlocutor one degree, then you're you hold to some view of conciliationism. Does that sound right? In specific kinds of cases, like yeah, I mean, yeah. If if the view just says that there are lots of cases where you should do that, then sure, I think conciliation okay. is right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's, I mean, then we're in basically the, the dispute between these views is more like, well, which are the cases in which you have to do that? Yeah, and which are the cases where you there ex- they look like exceptions to that well, kind of norm. Is how many cases? There's more count? of those. Yeah. yeah. How, how many cases are there such that like, and that might be, I know in like in philosophy, I'm learning that like, if you can say, well, that's just an empirical matter, then we get to like, oh yeah, that's just an empirical matter. But it's like, yeah, you have to like look at how many cases are there uh, 
that one of them wins out that like, Oh, there's all like, like you, you're talking about the messy cases and it seemed like there's way more messy cases than there are clean cases. So if that's, yeah. if, if that is the case, sorry to use that word so much. If that is the case, then it seems like maybe steadfasters have the upper hand because, uh, conciliationism works in a lab works in these nice little clean cases but those aren't the practical matters of life that we deal with every day so i mean that's one way to think about it i think i mean a different route or a different approach could say well the mess you know the messiness in itself should give you grounds for not being that confident yeah okay and so then we need a story about what the messiness consists in like, yeah. if it's like, I've got a bunch of evidence, and you've told me about your what your evidence is, but I can I can already tell that, like, the quality of your evidence is worse than mine. Mm. Um, even if you have a lot of it, you know, like, is quantity and qualitative. Right, right. Is here, like, um, you already get this in lots of epistemology where you're thinking, like, look, uh, maybe perceptual cases, sensory perception uh, judgments are ones where there's a quality to it. It's really hard to override it. <laughs> yeah. You might have a bunch of other evidence, maybe some testimonial stuff, maybe some memory stuff, you know, maybe some other stuff, but you haven't seen the thing that we're talking about. <laughs> and yeah. I have. Yeah. Um, well, you know, you might think, well, in a way you, you have more, more evidence than I do, but mine's better or something. Yeah. It's qualitatively more robust or something. You know, it's just a better kind of evidence. Yeah. Um, so, so again, like much will depend on what the messiness involves. Yeah. If I'm, I mean, think of it like, um, I, I think the most messy cases that might induce you to be extremely humble about whatever your leanings are, are ones where it's really hard to decide what counts as evidence or it's, there's just so many different things that could be brought in, different kinds of arguments, different kinds of experiences or whatever. Different, different styles of argument. There's inductive ones, and then there's explanatory or abductive ones. So, you yeah. know, it's like, well, and if some of them cut in different directions, okay. now we're getting very messy where right. you, you, you should at least not think you get to go with certain evidence and just take, make your view on the basis of it. You should be a little bit more careful yeah. as a way of respecting all this different evidence. If you've done that and then someone else has done that, it becomes much harder, even if you disagree at the end of the day, to think they're definitely wrong and I'm right. Because hmm. it's all you all you got to go on is like, well, I weighed this evidence in this way and this seems pretty probative. Yeah. They've approached it in a different way. Maybe they have different kinds of sort of values implicitly in play about how they're weighing evidence or what seems right to them. But again, that's ext gotten extremely messy on the sorts of grounds or evidence or something we're working with. Right, right, right. Yeah, that is messy. This is epistemology is so tough. I've said it before, but <laughs> it's so tough. Yeah, it's it it's fun talking with you about it. I, I do, I do really like this. Um, I was thinking about uh the defeaters and and disagreement. And uh, Sandy Goldberg's been on a few times, and I love Sandy. He's the man. Oh, cool. Yeah. Um, and it was cool to, to see him in this book as well. <clears throat> he didn't mention that to me. I wish he would have. I would have asked him about it. Um, but maybe I'll have to get him back on. So uh, you you brought up his uh, systematic disagreement criteria, and uh, you laid out how that can serve as like a defeater for one's justification of their beliefs. Um, 
That's can how you, Sandy's arguing for it. Yeah. Yeah. Can you do you have that on the top of your mind? Can you lay that out for us? Those well, three I've, I've got it. I've, I've pulled it up here as one of his other papers where he he so he talks about um, systematic disagreements as yeah. sort of different kind from what these you know clean cases in the epistemology of disagreement where it's like we make a perceptual judgment about the same matter or Christensen's check splitting cases like we both both go to dinner we're going to split the check evenly and we get the bill and, and we each are pretty good at math. We think we just like, we, we both, we don't have any reason to think we're anyone's better than the other. We just kind of mentally calculate our share of the bill. And I came up with it, come up with a different number than you. Right. Well, the, the evidence we're starting with is like, there's no question about it's being the same. Mm-hmm. You know, if, if you say that you owe 25 bucks and I think we owe 22 bucks, it's like, well, even if one of us actually got it right, it sure seems like each of us ought to, rethink and recalculate and like stop believing our answer at that time. Right. These cases that Sandy's more interested in are like, he calls them systematic disagreements where he says, here's what I mean by systematic disagreement. It's widespread, it's entrenched and it's non-localized. So I looked up to make sure I could give, give us the exact ways of spelling out those. So he says, um, a disagreement is widespread when at least, uh, Two of the positions endorsed by the disagreeing parties have attracted or are capable of attracting a substantial and dedicated following. And so it's not just a disagreement between two people, uh, yeah, like between two or more groups of people, maybe large groups, right? Mm-hmm. Which is to some degree committed to its claims in the face of such disagreement. So that's what it is for it to be widespread. Um, a disagreement is non-local when it's uh, like a disagreement not just over whether P is true, but like it's part of a much wider disagreement. It's connected to a bunch of other claims as well. So it's, it's like P is related into these other matters such that like the groups would presumably not just disagree on this one issue, but a bunch of nearby things where that's they're they're connected and hanging together in such a way that that's, that's part of what it is for it to be non-local. Right. It's not just over one local matter about some proposition, but over several that are connected in different ways. Um, and then, what's the last one? Entrenched. entrenched yeah. a, a disagreement is entrenched when it, he says it has persisted for at least some time with both sides continuing to defend and advance their side in the face of persistent challenges from the other side where the defenses in question remain responsive to the relevant evidence and arguments. And part of his project in thinking this through, this is developed in several different papers, um, is in one case, he's applying it to religious disagreement. In other places, he's applying it to philosophy overall. Hmm. And he thinks if you, you know, end up believing some philosophical view, while you also realize that this systematic disagreement over that and related matters is also, you know, so it's non-localized, but it's also widespread and entrenched. Well, that sure looks messy. Messy enough, but like intractable enough that yeah. you you shouldn't think that your way through landing on one side of it is a good guide to the truth. I mean, a lot of this right returns to the matter of like, are we believing for the sake of reasons that we think are getting us at the truth? Yeah. Rationality is like kind of this broadly speaking idea that like it's it's a kind of normativity that's guiding us toward, you know, into theoretical or intellectual truths. And this mm-hmm. is the process by which, we're, by which we're deferring to such norms and trying to use them to guide us. Well, 
He thinks in these kinds of cases, you shouldn't. You you ha- if you're believing that you've got some justification, you're believing because you're justified by your appreciation of the arguments. These other features of the systematic disagreement give you a defeater for thinking. They defeat your justification for believing it. Yeah. One one way to then deal with this is for him to say, I think this is his view actually. Not quite remembering how he ends up solving it, but I think his view is like we shouldn't actually believe these philosophical theories. Like we yeah. just weaker, like accept them or kind of tentatively endorse them, but not not believe them in the way we were starting off thinking of what yeah. belief amounts to. Which is so tough. That's why I wanted to bring it up because, um, and actually, I, I thought of why Sandy probably didn't tell me about this because he is a very prolific author and he's working on a thousand things. Yeah, I know, uh, right? Which is <laughs> That's true. I forgot about that, but um, it's it's crazy because it it applies to like philosophy. It applies to like religions, right? Like I know people at home are, are thinking like, well, yeah, that sounds like a, a worldview or world and life view or you know conceptual schema or whatever. Like whatever a religion is, it applies to that, right? Because like it's widespread, it's entrenched, yeah. it's non-localized. Like whether God exists or not, that's pretty non-localized for me. And I think like if you are taking your your faith seriously or your, you know your theism seriously it ought to affect every other one every one of your beliefs maybe there you could find a couple that don't but if anything's entrenched uh and and non-localized and widespread it would be that and so that would be like this argument for like global agnosticism on lots of things right lots of really important things maybe i mean this is to get at something we didn't touch on earlier when we were first working out our terms like belief or credence right i mean you might think that's why we should call, say, religious adherence of this kind faith. Like, yeah. Here's a gloss, a, a pretty easy gloss that someone might reach for, having just learned a little bit about this philosophy stuff and this epistemology stuff. They might say, faith is what you have when you're committed to it, maybe continuing to believe it, despite uh, these defeaters or despite these problems. Um, there's lots of different ways to gloss faith, even yeah. among philosophers and epistemologists. Sure. I actually don't have an exact view of it. I, I tend to think it's a fairly like cluster concept notion or a kind of pluriform notion. It's like sure. in everyday language, we use it for all kinds of things related to different matters. So I don't know that there's one perfect count or definition of what say even religious faith amounts to. Yeah. But the, the idea that it's commitment um, in the face of subpar, you know, reasons or evidence or something. And that, for the religious person, that's a kind of maybe a kind of virtuous or an appropriate going for it. And nevertheless, yeah, idea that like you know maybe someone should say that insofar as this is like what's going on with religion, that faith is the most appropriate response rather than belief or thinking you know or whatever. Um, and maybe someone in that vein could say, along with Sandy, that with respect to all these areas of philosophy. We don't really use this terminology as much, but you might think my views I have defended or I think are right in philosophy really just have a kind of faith in them. Hmm. <laughs> but of course, a philosopher is not going to love that because they think I've, I got to believe on the basis of these arguments. I got to defend it. Right. So they wouldn't call it that right. But I think in the religious perspective case, there maybe not isn't something too bad if you countenance his arguments that, yeah, you have a defeater. I think here's a different way to approach Sandy's worry. Um, if you think you, this is kind of the way you phrased this before is like, maybe you have a kind of error theory. Yeah. We're not 
an inerrant theory, but maybe you have a theory as to why there'd be this much disagreement. Maybe that's even part of your religious worldview. Like you have an explanatory set of hypotheses that we should expect there to be all these kinds of disagreement. Maybe right. they come from more than one source. Maybe, you know, on, in a certain Christian view, you might say, well, there's sin. <laughs> yeah. or, or, or people are just considering all kinds of things and the world's a complicated place. We shouldn't expect everyone to believe the same things. Mm-hmm. Or, or maybe also like religious religiosity comes to us through cultural resources. That's very diverging. It's dependent on language and traditions and different eras of history. And we should expect there to be lots of different religious worldviews or yeah. something. And, or, you know, you could tell a theological story. You could tell a nearby cultural historical story. You could, you could tell ones that go together, but here's the idea is what if, what if you have an explanation for why there's this mm. systematic disagreement and suppose you get tutored into your worldview or your religious perspective by realizing that's built in, like that's just part of it. Yeah. Now it's less clear that you could you could only have a, def, you know, what I should say is it's not less clear that you would, could justifiably believe the thing. Yeah. As, and I don't know if we should say it's because you have a defeater defeater. It's more like the conditions under which if you paid attention to all of this, that you're forming your belief is one where you already, you already took into account. Right. right, right. Sandy's saying is the defeater and you're, you're nevertheless thinking it looks st- still looks good anyway. Now, of course, I think this is a very highly intellectual way of thinking about it. Mm-hmm. Everyone's you know, going to typically be moved partly by pra- practical or pragmatic considerations too, social patterns of who, who you get along with and who you yeah. get influenced by. I mean, these are doing work too. So you might think to the extent that that's, those are too operative, maybe that's going to make it so you're not as justified as you think. But the point is, there's not like there's, it's not like there's nothing to be said for even how one could believe the right, believe these things or even maybe know them Yeah. in cases, despite widespread or, you know, widespread entrenched non-localized, what he calls systematic disagreement. That's awesome, man. I love that. And and I know all my, my Calvinist friends are, are saying, yeah, that's, that's what we would have said the whole time. You know, John Calvin said the, the, the hearts, the idol factory, it was already baked in. Like, of course we're going to see this disagreement that confirms that's wild. Well, um, that's good, but let me just point out that that brings its own problem. Sure, sure, sure. <laughs> because um, if you if you're going to go whole hog on that side side of that uh-huh. style of view, you're going to automatically be worried. I, I mean, if you're being honest, that that applies to you. So, you 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 might need a way to, to distinguish yourself from those who are badly influenced by. Oh yeah, for sure, man. That's gravity that's and sin and all this stuff. Yeah, it's called where, election. Election. Well. <laughs> Well, but the Cal- I mean, a Calvinist is normally going to suppose that they're not in a good position to judge whether they're elect. That's the problem. Yeah, yeah. There's some. There's some. There's or some... even if it's not supposed to be a problem, there have been many Calvinist sure. people raised in the Reformed tradition who have begun to worry about that. Yeah, for because sure. It's, again, it's it's like it's on God. It's not on you getting it right. It's like God chose you. Yeah. Or or however exactly it goes right. So right, right. But but even I think that's not just a Calvinist issue. Any religious person who's going to say, yeah, those who disagree with me are it's because they're sinful or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> Notice part of your worldview was that we're all sinful. I'm, you know, mm-hmm. and if that's a kind of hinge proposition or a kind of thing that was like deep down in there and, it, and it's not merely a product of holding the worldview, right? Then you might think, 
I might believe these things about God and be actually fouling them up because yeah. my sin's getting in the way or whatever. Yeah. A, a good Calvinist would say that happens anyways. Yeah. Right. Uh, yeah. I, I'm a Calvinist, so I can, I can dump on them. Uh, that's good. Uh, they're my friends. I can yeah. let you dump on them for me. <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, so th- man, that, that's really fascinating. I'm, I'm, I'm so glad you helped uh, us, us think through that one. Um, there's a couple like just, just kind of, kind of random things that I want to ask about disagreement. Um, do you, so, so uh, Rich Feldman came on and uh, he was, he was arguing great. from, yeah, from his, uh, uh, from his chapter in your book, he was arguing that religious degree, disagreement is uh, is not a special case of disagreement. It's, it's just like all the others. And at first I was kind of like, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm nervous about that. But then after I read his paper before talking with him, I thought that's a, that's good. That seems like it's a good thing, because if it, if it were a special case, it might be subpar. Religious uh, belief might be, you know, not up to snuff uh, to political disagreement or, or moral disagreement. But mm. it, if, if it's real, it should be. I just want to get your take on that. If you had any thoughts, uh, do you think religious disagreement, there's something special? about it or is it similar to all the other ones insofar so, as the others are similar to each other right because moral is probably way be, different than political and right there's, well yeah yeah i mean I, I think it's useful to note that moral disagreement political disagreement and religious disagreement are all very messy in somewhat similarly structured ways okay and and so they have that kind of in common com- compared to you know with at least other things like disputes in about empirical matters or about mathematical matters or whatever. <laughs> There's a little, <laughs> and so because, because partly because it's easy to see how certain kinds of reasons or evidence should help you settle it. Yeah. Whereas moral, moral, moral morality and politics and religion are kind of more woolly and more complicated than that. Yeah. I think I agree with Rich, um, and also in that in this volume, uh, Greta Turnbull also has a paper arguing in a different way for for the same idea. Hers is on. Her chapter is called "Religious Disagreement is Not Unique." Um, I think they're not. I think they're not special or unique in the sense that, like, there are exceptions here where, like, we should say, "Oh, th- these ideas." If you think conciliationism has something right, going you know about it, or if you think even a steadfaster that like disagreements over religion are sufficiently different such that these lessons don't apply. I think right. that's wrong. Okay. I do think it's different in another way, though, which is just that, kind of related to that thing about messiness. Like, the messiness involved with, like, even deciding what's the right kind of thing that could count as evidence in this domain, or how to, like, dispute certain arguments someone might give, or, or, or even how to, you know, thinking in a natural theology picture where you might think, here's some natural theology arguments for at least the existence of God. If you're if you're going with a more revelation picture where you're like let's just start with biblical texts yeah you know or whatever the revealed sacred texts are um, you'd be like that's the sort but then all these questions pop up about why I think that's a revealed text that God's using or right. what's its origin story you know and like what why should we rely on it for this matter or mm-hmm. whatever, right um, it's very very difficult to like make a good case for exactly what counts as the evidence or what's the most probative evidence in the religious domain. Yeah. Like it's even harder maybe than, than in moral philosophy, like <clears throat> in moral mm. philosophy, we at least have this sort of starting ground of like, you mentioned the particularist and Methodist kind of thing from Chisholm. 
And really there's a, there's a kind of similar set of approaches in moral philosophy, which are like, look, we can make judgments about cases. That's kind of like part of our data. Yeah. You know, this looks like the right thing to do in this scenario. This looks like the wrong thing to do. Right. Right. We're, we're like, we're operating with a kind of moral faculty or something. Mm -hmm. And, and yeah, it's been tutored by social instructions, what we learn from each other, what, what we praise and blame and, and all this stuff. But there's a kind of coherence to the, the common starting ground or something. Yeah. So even if there's some disagreement about some matters of morality, most of us tend to think there's a lot, we think there's a lot of agreement that starts us in the same spot, even right. across lots of cultures, right? Um, in religious matters, it's much more difficult to see mm -hmm. what starts as the right kind of common starting ground or something. Yeah. Like it's, it's just not, you have to start somewhere else. That's why you'd have to say, look at a sacred text or, or, or study the theological tradition, what it's saying about us and about God or, or whatever. Um, and then, th then think to yourself, kind of, does that sound right? Or, <laughs> yeah. or, or living this, does this help me flourish? Um, does this challenge me and help me flourish? Hmm. Does it make me a better person? All the, all, all the relevant sort of tests you might use, but it, different people will even have different reasons for thinking those are right. And so that's why it's different in one way. Yeah. It's and a little more like politics, I mean, po political notions. Like yeah. there are values in place somewhere. There's evidence and arguments, but then how does the, how does the thing get off the ground? It's like, we're already off the ground, but we don't know how we got there and then how to, how to make the case for continuing to fly off the ground or, or, yeah. or whatever, whatever that metaphor is supposed to be. Yeah, yeah, we can't agree if if it should have two wings or four wings or a, a right. Yeah, a propeller. That's interesting because I think about you know, like uh, religious experience, and I'm I'm uh, my dad was was uh, was saved in a in a charismatic Christian commune uh, in the seventies uh, after he hitchhiked, so like way yeah. out there stuff, and then he he immediately went from there to like a staunch hardcore. Uh, Baptist church that didn't believe in, in the gifts or, you know, they were cessationists. So my, my pops has like two different uh, Christians in his head where he, right. God, today God told me and the next day, like God speaks from the word alone. And so that's how I was raised. So I got a little bit of uh, all that in my head, but some people mm -hmm. will say, you know, look, uh, God speaks through his word today. That's it. And I can show you from Hebrews or wherever, like, it's done. And other people are like, no, nah, dude, God told me to give this guy 500 bucks. He gave me an impression or a feeling. I didn't hear a voice. So don't lock me up. But, um, and then, you know, it turned out that guy prayed for 500 bucks to turn his phone back on in the morning. Like, and so there's even within Christian traditions and within certain denominations themselves, there's different, there's disagreement about what counts as evidence in religious disagreements, which is wild. Yeah. Right. And that's among people who largely, in one way, agree, right? Right. Hey, yeah, they go to church Christians. Together. I think it's really useful to see, like, um, insofar as there's any takeaways from even just a you know a podcast on this for today or whatever. Like, when we're worried about things about disagreement, things get more complicated even in religion straight off the bat. Um, different than the clean cases we were starting with. Sure. You can you can start to identify ground where there's a lot of uh, uh, in. In like agreement versus disagreement. So like, here's something in the early chapter of this book I talk about, and I feel like not many people have really uh, labeled it this way that I think is useful. We can talk about different kinds of religious disagreement where we can first talk about, like we often are talking about inter-religious disagreement, like between people in different religions, yeah. right? Like 
between Muslims and Jews or Christians and Buddhists or Christians and Muslims or whatever. Um, <clears throat> you can talk about interreligious disagreement, but you can also talk about, um, among the monotheist traditions, interreligious agreement. Like huh. Christians and Muslims and Jews all think there's one God that is rough, you know, at least maybe not, you know, depending on how you're going to gloss omnipotence and omniscience and, you know, being loving or you know, there's going to be slight differences, but they tend to agree. There's one divine being that created everything there is and who has some of these divine attributes. Yeah. And then it falls apart when you start talking about more specific things like, <laughs> well, what's that God doing in the world? And how is God revealing God's self through various traditions or, right. or you know, is Jesus the only, is Jesus crucial for atonement or, you know, redemption or, or what? Um, was Jesus divine? Like all, you know, now, now they, now we're talking about their disagreements. Yeah. But it's important to see there's a massive amount of kind of core agreement, interreligious agreement. Yeah. But then we can also talk about, of course, the thing you were just talking about, intra-religious disagreement, like between practitioners of, say, Christianity or, or believers of Christianity. There's all these different denominations and dis- disputes about more specific things, right? Right, right. That's intra-religious disagreement, but there's also intra-religious agreement of a very crucial sort between all Christians, you might, you might think or hope, hope for. Anyway. Right. And then there's also what you might call extra-religious disagreement, for example, between those who are religious and those who are not, or, or, or like extra. agnostics or naturalists or something. Yeah. And then like all the rest, notice you need to help yourself to a kind of way of demarcating what counts as a religion here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a hard yeah. thing to do. Sure. I mean, any religious studies scholar will tell you that's ridiculously hard. Yeah. It's of a, of a piece with like the demarcation problem in philosophy of science. Yep. But this is suppose there's a way to do that that works fine. Well, a lot of the issues in our book tend to be postured in terms of there's a bunch of smart atheists out there. And if you're a theist or a religious in some way, we have these different beliefs and they're talking a lot about extra religious disagreement. Right. Right. But to return to then, there's going to be also a lot of extra religious agreement on other matters. Yeah. Not exactly over religiosity stuff, but, and so one thing that's fascinating, it's related to, I think, did John come on your thing for common consent argument? Yeah. Matheson. Yeah. So um, common consent argument is trading on inter-religious agreement. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, like all these Christians and Muslims and Jews, and historically so, all think there's a divine being of this kind. Yeah. And that, that's a huge number of people. <laughs> right, right. That's locating a kind of pressure that might stem from religious, inter-religious agreement. Mm-hmm. So the atheist or agnostic might think, when they start looking at that one, they might be like, oh, geez, that feels like it could be a kind of pressure from a kind of extra religious disagreement with me if you're an atheist let's yeah. say but there's widespread agreement against me on that matter see what i mean right 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 i think those labels are useful to see where there's both where there are problems where there are not problems i really like that yeah you've uh you've they're helpful in in charting the logical space i know some people hate that but some people love that sure no right um yeah yeah that's really <laughs> helpful and uh it is fascinating because I don't know how uh, I'll let the atheists do it, but but how they would weigh the intra agreement versus the uh, inter agreement and inter disagreement. So yeah, they all agree, and we can go with 
uh, Matheson's Common Consent, and that seems like it's maybe kind of scary. But then if you take a closer look, some of them are neoclassical theists, and they are raging against the classical theists who are, are not quite, uh, you know, they're they're having a Christian ones are going to be different than Muslim ones, than than uh, Jewish ones. And, yeah. and so then you, how do you weigh that? Like, yeah, they all agree on one proposition, and maybe John Hicks steps in and says, Ah, but it's all the you know religious ultimate. <laughs> uh, but yeah, that's it's fun. It's it's really fun to 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 think through that, and it's serious too, right? Like all my Christian friends are like, it's not just fun. This you know it's yeah no it's eternal weight of glory is on the line. Yeah, okay, it's true. But look, I mean, I mean, I think somewhere in a footnote in that opening chapter, I point this out. Like, if you had a case, just make it abstract. Like, suppose there's nine people that you encounter that all agree on P. <laughs> they all believe that P. But they also have all these disputes about QRST, UV, like all these like other things. Yeah. In the non-local sense of like Sandy's thing is like those are related to each other for them about why they're disputing over QRST claims. But they all agree on P. Yeah. But I find myself not believing that P. Mm -hmm. Be awkward. I I think I wouldn't be much. I shouldn't be much moved by their di- internal disagreements over QRSTU, all that. When I'm worried about the question about whether I've got P right. Yeah. Well, so what like it's they... a bit like, shall we go to, shall we go to dinner at this restaurant? We, I think we shouldn't go at all. We shouldn't eat at all. We should fast right now or whatever. Yeah. 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 I'm sure you go to the restaurant and you're arguing over what to order. Like, okay. be like, well, you know, there's, there's room for like deciding what you should order. <laughs> yeah. That's different from whether you should go to the restaurant at all. Like that's a well, separate different yeah, I love presupposes that. those other things. I, I think that's right. But I, I can imagine I have a particular friend of mine who who might say, No, the case is more like uh they they agree they uh superficially agree on P, but other QRST all that kind of affects P. And so really it's one has P, one has P star, one has P star star, one has P star star star. And so it's that they're not all actually agreeing on P. What do you make of that? It's, so it would be like, um, yeah. They, they, yeah they, they, I think it depends on how I – mean, you'd have to ask the many people, like, are uh, really different claims? Mm. Um, because notice, they're not arguing with each other over the P thing. <laughs> like, yeah. I mean, I, mean I, I started with the idea that, like, you know, there's one God. Well, okay, there is a dispute between Muslims and Christians. A Muslim's going to say Muslims you guys will say, you three. think there's three gods. Right. I mean, there, there's that, right? But there's a way in which, of course, you probably have to defer to someone's religious tradition about what they say the views are. You're saying that there is one God. Yeah. I and and so, means, yeah, yeah, that's yeah. good. So, so they might, you know, they might think, no, no, I don't understand your view. And it sounds to me like three gods. They might have a problem with that. Yeah. But I think, you know, insofar as someone will, ins- someone from outside will insist, oh, no, 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 these are too different from one another. So they don't even have this agreement. I think you'd have to, you'd have to check what the, theologians and the believers of those things would say that's good i i mean in between you know judaism and christianity there's at least i think this much going for it like christians ought to say that jews are worshiping the god that you know i think we should say is the god of jesus and it's the god of abraham and it's the same as the god of jesus and we know his name we call we, we would call him yahweh they wouldn't call him yahweh um sorry uh, Jewish totally but offensive but, but like I mean the, the very the very sort of transmission and the drawing on different you know some some of similar sacred texts and the history of it is supposed to be in itself a way of like pointing out well there's a lot of agreement here yeah <laughs> definitely a lot of disagreement 
Yeah. But the core idea underneath it all is not one that's being disputed. Yeah. Right? Yeah. God, Yahweh is the God that revealed himself to the Hebrew people and made covenant with them, all of that. Yeah. Um, and then the Christian says some special things later. But the Christian and the, the Jew should be able to have this much common ground where they're like, yeah, like that's, there's a whole lot that we agree on. Yeah. Um, I mean, I don't know where your friend that might have said that was coming from. Maybe they have a more nuanced way of parsing why it is that these are actually different claims. That- do, you, do, you, do you know Joe Schmidt at all? Do you know that name from the circles that we run in? He's a no. he's a he's an undergrad at, at Purdue, but he's like stupid smart. Josh Schmidt. Okay. Um, uh-huh. And he's very he is very nuanced. Um but but oftentimes uh he'll he'll quibble with people who who make the argument for God from so many arguments, right? So there's the argument from so many arguments. Look at all these. You got uh planning a project where there's all these yeah, put together, yeah. right? And he'll say, Well, look, you know, a lot of these are are arguments for rival conceptions of God. You know, some of these are for class, the God of classical theism, but others are for this neoclassical theistic God where, you know, God is not simple. And so they, they don't all get to add up in the way that the proponent of uh, the argument from all arguments. I see. No, that seems right. Insofar as there will be certain arguments for certain beings that depend on a specific gloss on what that being's attributes will be. Yeah. And so, but then what we're moving into is different terrain. I mean, insofar as we're talking about whether God is simple and what it means, yeah. simplicity, well, then we're actually talking about the way I'm putting it is this is an intra-religious, yeah. or maybe you can think of it as intra-theistic disagreement. Yeah. It's about how to think about God's attributes. And, and it's QRSG, all, it's all the other ones, but we it's all It's the specific thing, but we're saying there's a being. I mean, what is this? This this goes with other stuff. Like, you and I can know someone in common, but have different um, takes on what they're like. Or like, you might believe certain false things about them, and I might believe some other false things. We we believe some true things about them. But there's a person we both. I mean, unless we're both hallucinating. Yeah, right. Person we're both relating to and know personally, or whatever it is, and and like. You know, there's presumably behind it some fact of the matter about some of the attributes we would give or place, you know, say that person is like. Yeah. Um, I don't, it's not a stretch. I mean, it's, it's not special about God to be like, oh, there's this things coming apart. No, it's really like all these theists think there's a divine being like that. Ah, uh, okay. And they have a kind of broadly similar understanding of what divine would have to be like, the very, a kind of minimal notion. Yeah. And once you get beyond the minimal, of course, now there's lots of intra terrain to yeah. just so and and i use this phrase a lot and i might not understand it and i should probably not use it until i do but it's like god's god's like a, it's a rigid 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 designator picking out this entity god and not like sure. a definite description because if it were a def, definite description then you change one little aspect and it's a whole different thing totally that right? i mean that seems right i mean okay, cool. i think yeah. there's some room of course for um work on the nature of reference sure from Kripke and others in that kind of picture to be like, I mean, there's actually good work on this by people like Megan Sullivan, where they're, you know, she's like, she has a cool paper and maybe, maybe you want to find it. Maybe you don't, but she has an earlier paper. She was a grad student, a uh, colleague of mine. She teaches at Notre Dame now. Yeah. There's an early paper called semantics for blasphemy <laughs> hmm. uh, where she's like, look, how do we talk about these attributes that like, where there's this dispute over them and how do we talk about whether certain names 
or even descriptions, let us refer to God, right? Yeah. It's kind of like what you're getting at. Like, if the, if the causal story is a roughly Kripkean one on which, well, we kind of inherited a name and we can defer our intentions to the individuals along the chain of transmission, and it's a good causal chain, not a disrupted one. Yeah. Then just like with other people's names and so on, by testimonial means we can learn people's names and re- successfully refer to them. Same thing with God. Yeah. So yeah, it'd be like a rigid... If if the name functions, if the if if God is a name, you know, and not merely a definite description, or or, or some kind of t- title that functions as a name, then yeah. sure, it could, why couldn't it rigidly designate and refer to the same being, even though different people will have different characteristics or definite descriptions in play mentally for themselves? You think they're referring to a being that's got these attributes? Well, some somebody some people will be wrong about some of those, but that yeah. doesn't change whether they can refer to that being. That's good, and I, I should look up that paper because you're like the fourth or fifth person who's, who's told me about. It, I think um, there's another good paper by her um, in the in the in the Hidden Divinity and Religious Belief volume by Adam Green and edited by Adam Green and Eleanor Stump. Okay, another paper that I recently I teach on it um, where she's deploying more of this too about reference. Yeah, well, it's it's interesting because it this this does this is kind of a it gets into a practical matter for Christians where they say Christians today say oh my God and people are like you should say gosh and it's like yeah but if is God <laughs> picking out the same thing and and it's not Yah we're not saying Yahweh but uh, is the intention behind there to still refer to the same being God or is there any intention or you just you know so I, I love that kind of stuff and I love being right. some some people would say pedantic but I, it's important I think it's cool to to think through that stuff yeah. Um, uh, Matt, can I ask you just a couple pop philosophy questions before I let you go here? Sure. All right. Awesome. So um, I've been kind of giving some of my philosopher friends a hard time because uh, there's a popular phrase today that is, uh, I want a public facing philosophy. And, you know, no shame to anyone who's used it, but I like to to give them a little bit of a hard time because they want their hard work, which is really great to be popularized, but they don't want this popular facing philosophy in that they don't want to see what the... Uh, popular philosophers are asking or what popular thinkers are are questioning over you know like nfts and the metaverse and these kind of <laughs> things right they don't want to i don't want to touch that stupid stuff let me just talk about, so I'm, I'm going to start asking you know my philosopher friends because i'm i am trying to popularize your work but i want to ask what the people are asking as well um so when it comes to like uh let me think when it comes to like brain innovat cases i'm trying to like problem problematize this if my peers think that we ought to be infallibilists instead of fallibilists and they think uh you know maybe we just simply can't know that we're uh that we're brains whether we're brains and vats is that right right um should should that move me at all should in that case should i be they're my peers man they 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 don't know they think maybe and they think maybe i need you to back up the weight what's the infallible what do you mean by the infallibilist versus fallibilist yeah, I thought that like fallibilism gets you out of this, where it's like, you look, I can fallibly know that I'm not a brain in a vat, right? Like, yeah, I could be wrong. I could be a brain in a vat. So I can't like infallibly know that I'm not a brain in a vat, but I can fallibly know that I am not one. Uh, this is very complicated for a last minute question. <laughs> Sorry. Think, well, yeah, we don't have to if you don't want I mean, to. and I'm, I'm on record for liking a certain infallibilist picture about knowledge Ooh, okay. because I... I, I have these other sympathies and also have argued for it on different grounds. So let me just put it like this. Um, I don't think the right way to think about infallibilism about knowledge is to mean that it tracks with 
how how willing you are to entertain the possibility that you're wrong. Okay. So there's a different way to, I mean, that's, that's the kind of standard way to be like, if I doubt it, or I think it's, I, I make the judgment that I might be wrong about this, then that shows me that I don't, I couldn't know it, at least in the infallibleist sense. Yeah. I think that's not, I don't think that's the way to come at it. Okay. Once you change that way of thinking about it, there opens up room for being an, an infallibleist in the sense that if you do know, it's not epistemically possible for you that you're wrong. Okay. But you might make the wrong judgment about it being epistemically possible because you're you're doing imaginative stuff. You're like, yeah. well, I can't, you know, I can't rule out that I'm dreaming, or I can't rule out that I'm a brain in a vat. You're doing you're doing this sort of move with the machinery of certain versions of certain views in epistemology. But I don't think doing that is needed in order to know. Okay. I mean, part of this is exposing I'm more of an externalist than an internalist. Yeah. Some of this. So sure. so but let me go to the brain in a vat case. I mean, I tend to think along with um in a way, what what Austin JL Austin sometimes says about the dreaming case, um, and some others after him, that like you basically, if you're not dreaming or if you're not a brain nevat, you can know that. Hmm. That doesn't mean you have any amazing grounds for distinguishing. Yeah, two. yeah. So it it just mean I mean maybe you do have that, but you feel like you can't. A lot of that's going to depend on how how vividly you dream and things like that. So that's yeah, yeah, yeah. A local matter depending on each person. Um, <clears throat> but I think we shouldn't say. I'm less inclined to do what lots of internalists will do, which is like if they're indistinguishable, then that tells us what, what we're justified in believing, or, or that tells us something about whether we could know. I, I don't think that's the right way to come at it. I th- mm. in a way, it's like when you know that you're not a brain in a vat. It's because you're in the good case that you're not a brain in a vat. Yeah. Right. That, that's so tough, man. Because like, well, I, <laughs> and, I and so here, here, let yeah, me just finish please, that thought. Finish, so yeah. we, we are, I'll just go ahead and say it. We are not brains and vats. Right. None of it turns on the fact that we are not that. The grounds we have are sufficient for knowing in those cases, even though, of course, if it were a nearby possibility, and so modally speaking, if it's a nearby possibility that we, we could be invaded right now because there was a guy who was about to invade us or something the other day. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> or whatever. Now, maybe it's, maybe we're, maybe I sh- we wouldn't know, even though it's true. Yeah. But I think the, the point is like, you can't just start with, this is my take on, you can't just start with the way it seems from within your head and have that be the whole story about what you're justified in believing or whether you could know. It also depends quite a bit on the external situation. Yeah. So, but the- so distinguishability from within one's, you know, sort of from from the skin in or something, or from from your phenomenal field or something, is not the mark for me. Sure. Whether whether you're justified or whether you're believing. So, I think you can know that you're not in lots of cases, not always, right? You can know that you're not dreaming. You can know that you're not a brain in a vat when you have good enough grounds in you. And it's, let's say it's safe or whatever, modally yeah. safe, and it's tr- then it's true. So how how do we know if it's modally safe or not? Because um, you, you know, don't so- need to know that it's modally safe. That's the key. So, so we just are, we are in the good case. Being in the good case plus it being you know sort of sufficiently enough in the good case. That's the modal. Like it's not a nearby possibility for us that I not be in that good case. Why is it not a nearby possibility? Well, I'm just. I mean, 
I'm just helping myself to the assumption that there's not someone going around invading. <laughs> okay. If there I'm, was, though, would that mess things up? It could. Like a Dr. Kevorkian-esque person who's going around stealing people's brains? It could. It, then it would depend a little bit more on how close that guy has gotten to me in the actual physical world here. Uh, okay. Well, so in a very similar case, some people say it's the same thing, but simulation hypothesis where we're not brains and vats, but we're digitally conscious beings like Sims simulated, you know, things. Yeah. As we get closer to making, you know, the metaverse or, you know, whatever, whoever wins out, does that mess with the, with the modality there? Like, does that mess with our moral concerns that like, okay, so in 15 years from now, Zuckerberg's got a super realistic simulation metaverse, whatever. Mm-hmm. Does that make it more possible or more plausible that we're not in the good case? Um, is it the kind of scenario where we we can enter the metaverse and and exit, and then after a while we do it a bunch of times and we can't tell the difference? Yeah, that's a good. I should have looked like it's either that. So there's two. There's two. One is that like yeah, you entered in and uh, you you forgot that you ever did or or you you know i guess you'd have to say something else like you took a pill that for, made you forget um or or like vanilla sky with tom cruise or something if you've seen that movie yeah a long time ago he's 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 in the dream right but he willfully entered into it uh waiting out his time he's like in a cryo cryo chamber but they were, he was having a, a lucid dream or I mean, or, yeah. or the other one is that you are a digitally conscious being Right, that you you just are there's nothing over and above your well right digital so self. if i'm already a digitally conscious being or we're mm-hmm. already brains and vats then my view of the case is that we can't know that we're not because that's false right so that's why the facts do some work right? it's just that you can't move from that straight over to the idea that like well i it sure looks like it would look the same from within yeah <laughs> We're a brain in a vat, or if I were in the metaverse, or if I were, you know, in the a facts st- matter. Yeah, the the case actually the matters. The facts do work, including how modally close they are. Now, that's why it's it makes it a little harder for like, look if the, if they develops very right now. We are all in the real world, but there's going to be very soon a version where we can enter a simulation and we wouldn't be able to tell the difference. Well, if it's, I mean, I guess the my answer would probably turn on, like how close I came to deciding to enter it in the first place. Like well, that's going to be related to how modally. Yeah. Well, then you could, you could, you could think is. of someone who, you know, Zuckerberg comes around knocking people out and putting them in there and erasing the, mem- the, the fact that they got knocked out and put in there. Right. So like there's a body, a body snatcher, Zuck who steals people and puts them in there. If you had that knowledge, that would make things more mortally close for you. Right. Cause you're like, I wouldn't remember even if, well, it, it doesn't matter whether I know about it. What matters is how. Okay. I mean, this is the point. In, like, you're not an internalist, yeah, right. Yeah, no, right. And right. in fact, I'm such I'm such not an internalist that I will say, the brain of that and I have different evidence. The dreaming version, or, or the sort of person in the simulation, and I have just different evidence. So okay. that's wild for most internalists. But I think that's the way. That's a way to make good on the like. We don't. Again, the point though is like you have to you have to allow we don't we don't have great access exactly to the nature of our evidence. Okay, that's for, internalists don't like any of these moves. <laughs> I know they're all freaking out at home. They want a good grip on what their evidence is. They want to have per, pretty good access, perfect access to it. They want to have the the norms by which we're using that evidence to be operationalizable, where you you know that you're following the rules or whatever. I'm just not. <laughs> 
I'm not yeah. in that universe, but like the, so, so someone that might be like, that's a stupid view or set of views. But one of the payoffs is I get to say, and it's not like this is driving it, of course, but one of the payoffs is that like, I get to say, I can know I'm not a brain of that without having some amazingly, you know, dismissive evidence that would help me discern that I'm not a brain of that. It's just, I've got, in the, even on the Williamson equals K view, it's like, I've got as part of my evidence that I'm not a brain in a bat. Yeah. And so um, do you, I would say. So, but it's like, even in that case where I got it as part of my evidence, here's what's tricky. If it becomes modally safe or, or unsafe, like there's a nearby possibility, even in the physical world that I go and batted. Now it's trickier to solve given the model, but I think we should say, if it's a nearby possibility that I'd be, you know, I, w- I would have been invited or I would have been in a simulation, even though I'm not, that doesn't throw off the truth, but it does throw off how possible or how nearby it was Yeah, that I could, couldn't now or soon be. So then, so then I, I have to say, it's less clear to me that I could know if that's what's going on. And that's okay. the possibility of the metaverse looming makes it a little less, I mean, it doesn't change what I know that I know it now, right. but either, or if it's like a black mirror thing where people, people coming and going and enjoying a different set live. Yeah. Um, if they were making judgments about, Oh, this is the real world. And this is the, 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 the virtual world. Mm, those judgments are going to be not very stable or not very safe. Well, so what we just discovered is that we need to have uh externalist rally against Zuckerberg and say, look, you're going to, you're, you're making things very modally unsafe for us. You need to stop. <laughs> You know, <laughs> this is not good. Um, so just real quick, uh, last follow up here. Do you yeah. think that do you think that um, you have different evidence than the brain in a vat or the simulated sim because of like content externalism that you've interacted with with real things and they've interacted with with digital or simulated things? Is that is that what makes the evidence different? That's part of it. OK. Um, or at least there, that's available to say. OK. Um, I just, I mean, it's not in a way that if I go that route only, then it throws off, I think some of the other things I would want to say, Okay. rather just say, um, insofar as the brain and that sort of twin or whatever, yeah, have, would have what looks like similar contents in its belief to what mine have, I have to say the content just is different because mine are about the actual Right. world and it's or not yeah um so the content externalism will do that but i think you also just can run it without or without needing too much of that okay i've got a lot of knowledge of various kinds that it doesn't have yeah and because i'm i like e equals k we just have very different evidence yeah then it's unsurprising that i could know and it couldn't or that i could be justified in believing or something like that and it couldn't um because we just have very different evidence. If if you're if you're simulated <clears throat> twin, so that he's not a brain in a vat simulated twin, whether that occasion is the case or not. Um, simulated Matt thinks that he's on a podcast with Parker. Uh, he has evidence for that. Is Where that, Parker's a real person? No, me. Uh, simulated Parker as well. In 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 the simulated world, he doesn't he doesn't think it's simulated Parker. He thinks just what you think right now. Presumably, you're you're not thinking this is not a simulated Parker. This is a real Parker, right? That's not like part of what's going on in your head. Probably maybe it is now. Cause I brought that up, <laughs> but, but right. So like he has the same beliefs as you. 
but you your evidence is is knowledge is his evidence knowledge but like simulated knowledge now you know knowledge star i mean so wait um i'm sure i'm understanding the case right so the twin of mine that's in a simulation believes of himself that he's not in a simulation and believes that he's on a podcast with someone parker who's not in the simulation all that probably he probably not the simulation part he probably just thinks that he's talking to parker on a podcast right because that usually we don't go around thinking like well in the simulation that's true so so okay that's that's what i'm trying to get at whether whether he can have true beliefs in in the simulation oh yeah you i mean i mean notice the content externalist it will make it the case we just have different contents but then that that brain in nevada the simulated version has lots of true beliefs okay and maybe, a lot of, yeah. maybe a lot of knowledge. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, okay. But but then it gets thrown off because we thought these were supposed to be on a par or something. But then if we change that content now, they're just they're about they're believing different stuff about different. Gotcha. There's something that's helpful. Okay, that's really good, man. This is this is fun. See, this is this is good. This is like <laughs> I'm gonna clip. This, this. is a lot this of fun. Is, this is gonna be really good. Um, okay, uh, real quick, um, as we go, man. I don't know if it's because. Uh, I've seen Johnny Depp in, in, in the public lot, but you got like this young Johnny Depp vibe gone. Has, has anyone wow, ever told you? you wow. look, has, no one's ever told you that? It could I be really do. I don't stuff. think I do. Right there, man. I'm The, the audience, if you guys see it, comment and let, uh. let me know that I'm right because I'm seeing it right now. It's pretty awesome, man. Um, but Matt, thanks. Thanks so much for all your time here, man. Thanks for, for the book and getting your publisher to, to send it my way. Sure. Uh, really I hope they send you a hard copy at some point. They should. Yeah, that'd be, that'd be really nice um, because I don't know if I'll ever be at a I'll be able to afford it when they come out with the soft cover for sure. But, um, I appreciate <laughs> yeah. your time and, and sending the work. I'm, I'm looking forward to, to reaching out to some more of the folks from the, from the volume. Cause it's, it's really cool. It's really important, really fun stuff and helping me think about my faith even more seriously. Sure. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. It's a lot of fun. Yeah. You, you've, you mentioned some of your other work. Um, do you have that somewhere where, where our, the audience can go find more of your stuff? I mean, sure. All of my, I have a website. You can Google me and find me. Um, okay. It's how it's an ed. It's an spu.edu housed site. Sure. Almost all of my stuff is also often often my own versions. Like even the even the disagreement in religion chapter that starts this volume off as its kind of introductory thing. I have my own sort of PDF versions you can find on Phil Papers as well. Okay. Cool. There's a I have a Phil Papers or they call it Phil People profile that shows all that so if someone wants to go look at that or, or download and read read my chapter without getting the book that's easy to do okay awesome so, yeah and well, i can uh, send it to you if, i don't know if you put, put that, that in the show notes or, yep. or in the description but like that's Absolutely. a pretty easy way for people to check some more stuff out of okay awesome well man this has been fantastic that's gonna have to do it uh for now folks this has been parker's pensies and as always all glory to god <laughs>